1: Hello, and welcome to a special edition of New Books Network, in which we talk about previous winners of the Coleman Prize. I am Bernardo Batislazo, your host for today. Naming the honor of British business historian Donald Coleman, 1920-1995, this prize is awarded annually by the Association of Business Historians to recognize excellence in new research in Britain. It is open to PhD dissertation in business history, properly defined either having a British subject or completed at a British university. All dissertations completed in the previous year to that of the prize are eligible. Today we have Louis Wade, a recipient of the Coleman Prize in 2023 with his dissertation entitled Privilege at a Premium Insurance, Maritime Law and Political Economy in the Early Modern France, 1960 to 1710. By the University of Exeter, Louis. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Your dissertation, Louis, has been published as has as advertised in the podcast under the title "Privilege Eco- Economy and State in the Old Regime: France, Maritime Insurance, War, and the Atlantic Empire under Louis XIV," published by the Business Press in 2023, both as a paperback as an open-access book. The link to this open-access book is, will be provided in the show notes. Louis Wade is a Marie-Solodos Kakuri postdoctoral fellow at Leiden University. His doctoral thesis was the recipient of the British Commission for Maritime History's Beudel and Brewer's Prize for the best doctoral thesis in maritime history. And as we've mentioned, by the Association of Business Historians, Column and Bright, for the best doctoral thesis in business history. So it is a real pleasure to have you today in the podcast, Louis. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became an academic and how you found this topic.
0: Wow, it's a really good question. So my journey it's academia, I think it's been quite a complicated one and having listened to the other uh, podcast each time with other common prize winners I think that's actually that seems to be a common theme amongst the winners is that we all uh come into academia run uh slightly unusual path uh so in my case I grew up on the outskirts of Ipswich in the United Kingdom um went to fairly normal uh, state comprehensive schools and uh but i had some really wonderful teachers who inspired a lot of history which uh, continues to this day as an undergraduate at cambridge i was blessed to have the support of some excellent academics uh in particular mary Lavin and helen Pfeiffer. Uh, helen supervised me for my undergraduate dissertation on, on the english levant company and its operations in the Ottoman empire in the early 17th century and going to the archives for the first time working with manuscript sources and developing my own argument that was the point for me that was the turning point where i thought to myself this is what i want to do for my life for my career um so um so yeah so after I completed my degree, I took a gap year. I came back to Ipswich uh, and uh, worked part time in a school as a teacher assistant, and also um, started learning French because I decided that having worked on English trade with the Ottoman Empire as an undergraduate, I wanted in my masters and PhD to work on French trade with the Ottoman Empire. It seemed like a uh, a good fit. So, um, so while I was, uh, while I was working, while I was learning French, I was putting an application for a PhD positions in America and a master's position at Cambridge in the UK. Uh, I was rejected for all of the PhD positions in America and, and I did get an offer for the masters at Cambridge, but, uh, there was no funding attached to that. So in all honesty, I wouldn't have been able to have taken that up and. So come late that year, um, I thought the academic uh, career, the academic dream was over, uh, but fate intervened and a position was advertised uh, on a European Research Council uh, funded project run by Maria Fizarro at Exeter looking at uh, maritime law um, in early modern Eurasia and in particular for this position maria who ended up becoming my supervisor wanted this particular phd project to look at marine insurance and marine insurance institutions in 17th century france and a colleague of hers uh, giovanni check kindly uh, identified some registers in the archive national in paris which would be a good starting point so when i saw this uh, this advert I just knew i at the moment i saw it i knew that it was the right fit for me and i had to go for it and although i didn't have a masters um uh, maria mercifully didn't mind and uh, pushed very hard to uh, to, uh, to 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 get to give me uh, that phd position and so had so it was uh, i was awarded the position and the funding and um and I moved to Exeter and started my uh, PhD there. And after about half a year, I went to the archives in Paris for the first time. That was uh, very challenging uh, because it was the first time I'd worked in a French institution. First time I'd even worked with French archival sources. So it was a real dive into the unknown. It, uh, it was a real single spin moment. And certainly for the first hour or so, I thought to myself what have I done why am I here why did I think I could do this that's so after carping down and uh spending some time with sources I was eventually able to um to uh to get to grips with it and the rest of the PhD followed and um after I defended my thesis uh after a long time applying for many positions and being rejected for many positions which I appreciate is very common at the moment uh, in the academic job market. Um, I was fortunate enough to first of all get a postdoctoral position at the Institute of Historical Research as uh, a fellow for the Economic History Society, and then my current position as a Murray Oscar uh, Curie, uh, postdoctoral fellow uh, at Leiden. So it's been a long meandering path, but uh, here I am. Thank you.
1: Yes, yeah, I think it makes um, the point that there is no straight line in terms of careers for many people and yeah. just go with the flow in a way. But the, what did winning the Coleman Prize meant for you personally or professionally, given that this this happened about uh, six months from the time that we we're, we're talking? uh, perhaps a little bit more. Um, so what, what has this experience meant? How was the, 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 you know, running up to the presentation and the day and since then how, how things have evolved for you?
0: It was a real privilege winning the Colbert prize and it came at a very, I think a very important point to my professional career in terms of my sense of identity as a, as a historian. Because my dissertation in my book touches on a a lot of different types of history. And certainly after the well, going through the PhD, and then after the PhD, it was hard to position myself as a particular kind of historian. I could potentially uh, suggest another social historian or a political historian or an economic historian, a business historian, uh, and so on. So thinking about the type of historian I am and the type of historian I want to be um applying for the common prize really helped me with that because at the time of applying I wasn't sure if I would class myself as as a business historian or whether I would be accepted as a business historian certainly I'd been reading lots of articles in the business history review enterprise and society and other articles and uh other journals sorry and and certainly I was greatly interested and greatly admired the work in those journals but because of because of the nature of my uh, nature of my research i wasn't sure if, if i was quite the right fit for business history uh, whether whether i could really sell myself as one um so when i saw the advertisement for the uh, the call to the common prize, I, I wasn't expecting anything going in at all i submitted my dissertation on the basis that it does no harm to try Um, It was really heartening um, as the process went on as I I made it onto the long list and then the short list and then came to the Association of Business Historians Conference uh, in Newcastle um, earlier in the year to present as part of the Coleman Prize uh, session It was, as I say, very heartening to um, feel like actually my research was a fit uh, for the business history community and that i would be welcomed and going into a room and presenting in front of a very large group of people uh, especially a group of people you've what uh, hasn't necessarily engaged with before engaging with that group for the first time is very nerve-wracking and i wasn't sure what to expect but i was very touched and very grateful to the audience for being so engaged with my presentation and for the really very sharp very uh and, and very precise questions which I asked they which showed that they they had a very real interest in what I was saying um and so being announced as a co prize winner was was a real honor and now having the opportunity to um uh, to work um work alongside members of the association of business historians uh, committee um is uh yeah it's allowing me to uh, to develop my professional ties further and develop those links with the business history community on a surer, on a much surer footing than I would have done before. If beforehand I wasn't sure if I could say that I'm a business historian, now I am confident in saying that I am a business historian alongside being historian of other things. It's it's okay to to be navigating those different identities at once.
1: Taking a uh, moving things forward, um, making a parenthesis before we go into the book, what sort of advice would you give to other colleagues we are, which are in a similar stage of development as you are and in terms of about to finish or just finish their PhD and then thinking about, publishing this as a book or not, you know, the process of, because you've gone through a process of selecting a publisher. And then as we said, at the start of the, of the recording, you secure funding for this publication to be open source, which adds another layer of complexity that not a lot of people might be aware or uh, see the importance of that in the current climate of of publication. So um, some people would go for, so what made you go for the book and how did you manage this process is the question.
0: So my advice to people finishing up their, uh, their PhD and thinking about their publication options, first and foremost is to hang on in there to the extent that one can of course with the resources which you have at hand um, because the academic job market is Especially brutal right now. It is always brutal, but especially so at the moment. And while one is considering publication options, uh, people will inevitably be applying for positions as well—postdoctoral positions, permanent positions—and they might find it takes a while for those applications to bear fruit. So, um, so first of all, I'd I'd assure people in that position that they're not alone. Uh, that it is very common. For these things to take time, so if so, you had so you had your dissertation to hand that you want to think about your publication options. I think the first thing to do is to talk to the people around you, ask your supervisors, ask other uh, other peers, other mentors you might uh, have in your academic network, and see what they recommend. Because having engaged with your work, they will be in a good position to advise you as to how best to. Pitch your work, whether as potentially one or multiple articles, or as a book, or potentially a combination of the two. In my case, I felt it made sense, and my uh, and my network around me felt it made sense to publish the uh, the thesis as a the book because the chapters tie together very closely. One chapter leads into the other uh, to make. to make this coherent narrative so while it would have been possible to have taken the chapters and published them individually after some work i feel in the case of thesis and then the book the whole is greater than the sum its parts and it made sense to put the effort into refining the chapters and then really honing in on the argument rewriting uh, and redrafting the introduction and the conclusion several times to get it to the point where I was happy with it. Because inevitably, uh, at the time of submission of the thesis, it wasn't; uh, it, it remained a work in progress. And uh, so, I was uh, happy to be able to have the time after the submission, after, after defence, to be able to uh, to work on developing uh, the book um, and and making it. Well, effectively making the thesis what i would have liked it to have been uh from the start in effect Um, but equally for other people the article approach might be more appropriate and i did publish a few articles alongside the book drawing on my doctoral thesis uh what an enterprise and society one in the english historical review uh which took material which i would have liked to have put in the thesis but unfortunately i couldn't quite make sense but it was a positive in the sense that I was able to take that material and instead turn 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 this material into standalone articles, which has also been a big help to me uh, in approaching the academic uh, job market. So I think it's, I think the situation is unique to everybody. Every person coming out of their PhD will have their own, will need to tailor their own approach to this. And, uh, as I say, the best thing you can do, I think, is to think about what you think is best and ask the people around you and, uh, and uh, then work from that.
1: That is helpful. And it also opens up to move the discussion and ask you if you could give us at this point a big picture, concise overview of the book while thinking, um, you know, what what is it that you wanted to achieve? and um uh, we'll we'll pan out or, or flash out yeah bring out the some of the contributions that you make in the in the discussion uh after after that
0: sure so in effect my book is a study of the marine insurance markets uh in paris under the 14th so in particular i study two uh insurance institution established by the 14th the first being the royal insurance chamber uh, established in 1668 and then the royal insurance company established in 1686 and to the best of my knowledge uh, this company was the first chartered company in the history of marine insurance so my book and my book works I would I would say on two levels on the on the one side there is the comparative element uh, I wish to explore the nature of the uh, Parisian prison real insurance market and ask the broader question well why why did Paris not emerge as a leading insurance center in the way in which London and Amsterdam um, the leading uh markets in this period and also the, the chief rival was to, uh, to Paris, to more broadly, England and the Netherlands. Why did these markets achieve the levels of success, which Paris uh, did not? And uh, so uh, the discussion of the book unfolds as a result of that broader research question. I did the process pivoting to the other side of the discussion. I also want to understand or present a new uh present a new understanding of of old regime France and how uh of and how state intervention into the economy can give us a unique perspective on the nature of absolutism uh in this period.
1: So just to to um remind our our our, our viewers, you you are talking about seventeenth and eighteenth century France. We're talking about the regime of Louis the the fourteenth and the nature of politics which you, you you bring out into the into the narrative in a very um interesting and, and subtle way in which you're coming in and out and where those the creation of, of these companies and the importance of maritime law or maritime insurance sorry is is sitting within within this this discussion. Um, one of the other um, things that you do is that you try to revise the, the the discussion about Colbert and Colbertian policies and and to what extent it was really just the, you know that it has uh, these great tones of 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 of, um, of 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 these policies and in the process you also give us um, a very interesting insight into the actual workings of mercantilism at this at this point in time because um uh, um, uh, it's a leading question why would French french um government officials or the king be interested in developing a maritime insurance market
0: you say it's a leading question i think i think it's an excellent question actually so Um, So in sense, marine insurance was one of the key markets which was driving more development of Amsterdam as a major commercial center. And slowly but surely, uh, London would would rise as well um, to prominence on the back of, uh, or or at least with with great support from its marine insurance market. Marine insurance and commerce more broadly go very nicely hand in hand because of the way in which the marine insurance market allows merchants to spread, spread their risks. Uh, and, and, the, and the Amsterdam and London markets were able to do this on a level which other markets up to this point had not been able to do. And so it very much created this virtuous circle. And France looked on at the economic development of England and the Netherlands, of, land, of London and Amsterdam, with a great deal of envy and also frustration that france wasn't getting a slice of the action itself as far as uh, the french were concerned first of all jean-baptiste colbert Louis uh, XIV's 14th uh, eminent minister of finance colbert was very frustrated because as far as he was concerned france was this incredible kingdom with this abundance of natural resources and incredible wealth and yet somehow it was the Dutch who were ruling the Seas, who had managed to establish just East India Company to create this colonial empire in the East Indies, um, with the, uh, the English doing the same to assessment instead. And so Colbert wanted to put the Dutch in their place, in effect, and assert what he saw as France's natural supremacy in commerce. And... So, first of all, in 1664 was the establishment of uh, the French East India and West India companies. But at the same time, he was also uh, contemplating plans for a marine insurance company. Uh, this did not materialize, um, but the Royal Insurance Chamber followed in 1668. And the goal for this chamber was to link demand for capital in the ports of France with the supply in Paris. Because Paris had a wonderful, uh deep well of capital, uh, which simply needed to be tapped into. But there wasn't there wasn't at this point in time necessarily a very developed capital market in Paris. Uh the institutions and the institutional frameworks necessary for such a market were not yet in place. So the Royal Insurance Chamber uh was established and succeeded for a time in allowing merchants and ship owners in the ports of France, La Rochelle, Nantes, um, so on, to seek coverage and seek finance from wealthy Parisians. And, um, and so, the, and, and as it succeeded for a time, and equally with the establishment of the Royal Insurance Company in 1686, the goal was once again to get wealthy, uh well-connected investors on board to support the development of maritime trials and again this was uh, this was achieved with some success but also with some challenges and some problems along the way in the end paris was never able to achieve the sort of success which amsterdam and london were able to do uh, to achieve and a large the book is explained. well, why, why is this the case? And as
1: you mentioned, it is a question of, on the one hand, how institutions and financial institutions in general, financial markets in particular are built at, at you know, in the pre industrial era, which is not something that happens easy and and it's something that we need to be reminded of, as people think that um you know they have been there for for ages and in this sense i think that you tell me if it's fair um maritime insurance is pointing into an issue that becomes more prevalent during the industrial revolution and that is the fact that individuals, family run firms no longer are able to assume the full risk of an enterprise. That assuming you know buying a ship that is gonna go around the world and, and coming back is it requires an amount of resources that goes beyond that those that a single individual or a single family would have it would that
0: be fair i think there is a great deal of truth in that and historians of marine insurance in the pre-modern and the modern period there is a lot often a lot of emphasis on frank knight's distinction between risk and uncertainty which i i think is quite useful oh. uh, uh to us as historians uh this idea that either there is uncertainty that which cannot be measured that that which cannot be quantified that which Cannot, a price tag cannot be put on, or uh, or risk, which is precisely the opposite that, which you can quantify and can therefore put a monetary value on. In the early modern period, a big a big issue, a big restriction on the development, up, on the development of the maritime commerce is uncertainty, uh, it is just not knowing what is going to happen and the inability to absorb capital shock. When a ship is captured, when a ship sinks. These are things which can bring down an enterprise and with it entire chains of capital uh, or, or, or of credit, uh, indeed. And what a marine insurance allowed people to do, allowed uh, merchants, allowed ship owners to do, was to put a price on that risk and to shift that risk and uh, to share it uh, amongst the broader community. So that such capital shocks weren't normally so problematic. But with the Industrial Revolution, of course, there's a great deal of complication that arises in, in economic affairs, uh, increasingly sophisticated um, economic operations. And one does have to look today. Insurance might not seem especially good fun or especially exciting to study, but it is everywhere, and it is the bedrock of... The economy today and as uh the effects of climate change ripple through the economy and as particular risks potentially are converted back into states of uncertainty as we uh, as ensuring look at particular situations and say we can't put a price on this or the price of this uh if we can put a price on this price is so high that nobody would be willing to pay for it, it- potentially become a death by a thousand cups as businesses find that all of these risks and uncertainties which they were able to trade at a price up to now suddenly they have to bear for themselves and those capital shocks which early modern people uh early modern merchants and ship owners had to deal with on a regular basis suddenly that potentially becomes the norm again and that would be an incredible shock to the system, to the economic system and to our understanding, I think, of the world as we know it today.
1: And something that you give some, you know, some 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 bit of space, and I leave you to use the, the, the correct terminology, is whether the actions of the sovereign are going to be credible and the importance... Or whether this the 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 credibility of this action has in the creation of institutions and and you revisit this idea in the creation of of these two markets would, would you kindly elaborate a little bit on on this
0: certainly so I was especially drawn to the argument of credible commitment uh following uh application of Rod Harris's book going the distance uh, uh a few years back uh, with Princeton University Press, so Harris's argument, uh, which applies to the English and the Dutch East India Companies, is that what the England uh, is, is that what England and the Netherlands were able to offer uh, to merchants, which other countries, including France, could not, was this credible commitment to not expropriate the resources of the subjects in this case, merchants. To put it another way, those who, uh, who who invested in the English and the Dutch East India companies were, uh, in Harris's argument, able to do so, confident that the money they invested was not going to be seized by uh, seized by the sovereign and used for other purposes. And for Harris, it's this distinction that explains why the English and Dutch East India companies arise so early in 1600 and 1602. Uh, so long before other countries established their own East India companies and also why they achieved uh, such a great deal of success where other companies including uh, the French East India company uh established by Colbert did not I'm not especially convinced by this argument I I I find uh, Harris's book fascinating and there's a great deal I like about it but this particular aspect of his argument I find problematic not least because credible commitment, I think, is not something which we see in England or the Netherlands, at least not on the level which he suggests until far later uh, in the day. And on the French side, credible commitments, in the theoretical paper, it was a problem. Uh, theoretically, Louis XIV was an absolute monarch whose power was unchecked by, uh, by other institutions. But in reality, uh historians of France have been pushing back strongly against this perspective for many decades now um the consensus uh up until recent years has been one of absolutism a social collaboration or in effect that louis the had to work with social elites to get done what he wanted to get done he could not simply sit in Versailles and say this is what i want and you will do it it was far more complicated of this. And so my book, in Revisiting the Argument on Credible Commitments, tries to reinterpret um, the chartered companies, including the French studio company, but also the Royal Insurance Company, as I mentioned before, and tries to rethink these companies as breaches of absolutism, as, uh, as ways for the state to get around the problem of credible commitments, and still achieve what it wanted to achieve in effect investors knew going in that there was a very good chance that their investment would be expropriated in one way or another but they still invested because of the social legal um, economic privileges often uh on offer to those who invested so if we take a step back and and not look at the companies purely as uh, as profit-driven endeavors. If we look at them as products of this broader culture of privilege, as broader uh, creatures of absolutism, we get a very different picture. I, I suggest of of these uh, of these companies and how they function and why the fact that they didn't necessarily make profits isn't necessarily a sign of failure. Actually. In the case of the board insurance company it's it as far as i as i can tell uh, based on the records which are still available to us it, it looks like it lost all this money but in fact it was still regarded by ministers as successful because it was serving uh, the function for which it was established that is it was designed it was established with the express goal of protecting french commerce at sea and in that sense, it had succeeded. And that's one of the things that I that I very much like from, from your discussion without
1: making this a, a whole discussion of credible commitment and north and, and institutions, but certainly a little bit of a, a small criticism in this overemphasis into property rights as the drivers of long-term institutions and long-term development, which is probably at the heart of colleagues like uh, like, I a mogul, who's who's been very successful with their books, but you know there there's been a, um, some some discussion on on that. But let let us move on. You you use a wealth of archives, and you've already told us that it was the first time that you went to to work with the French archives. So, what other sources of material were you bringing together to tell this very rich story?
0: So, the base for my research were the institutional registers for the Chamber and the company, um, there is such a dearth of surviving evidence on marine insurance, even in the big markets in Amsterdam and London. So the registers which are in Paris all these institutions is quite extraordinary, and I was very lucky to be able to work with them and uh, get so much out of them, especially since these registers are of such a diversity, there are the quantitative uh, registers. Um, So, in effect, the policy registers themselves, listing the individual policies, one after another, Uh, the amount uh, underwritten, um, the voyages being insured, what was being insured, and who was doing the underwriting. And this allowed me to present a big macro picture of the two institutions and track their underwriting over time. Uh, And in the case of the Chamber, as well, the track record of individual underwriters um but uh, also you have the more what I would say are more qualitative registers as well um in particular arbitration uh registers um which go into a lot of depth as uh, as to how conflicts emerged and how these were resolved and I was able to pair the arbitration registers with the court records of the Parisian Admiralty court to presents a slightly different picture from the one which the institutional economics offer presents for uh, conflict resolution. That is, um, in the case of 17th century Paris and for, for marine insurance, it wasn't simply a case of, uh, of choosing arbitration uh, over the court system because it was cheaper and uh, and so on. In fact, the two went hand in hand, arbitration and litigation uh, were mutually coherent uh they were the mutually coherent strategies and often uh arbitration was used as a first step which would then be escalated to uh, to litigation if necessary or even vice versa and so um this is this is, uh, this is the part of my analysis uh at the end of the book which um which i really do try to bring out otherwise uh, another large uh part of my source base are the papers themselves um in particular the letters of the Sec- secretary of state and maritime affairs uh these letters which are being written uh, from the secretariat uh both both in terms of letters to um individuals throughout France throughout, throughout uh, and throughout the world seeking information which was useful for marine insurance purposes um but also memoirs discussing uh marine insurance these papers really allowed me to dig to the heart of what we were discussing earlier about the state's interest in marine insurance it was here that we really see why the state was interested and the lengths it went to to support these institutions because of course paris is not a natural place uh to establish a marine insurance market it, uh, these institutions needed help and they got a great deal of this support through, uh, through the state uh, and its information networks and these state papers uh, allowed me to track these information networks and how they were used in service to the needs of rural
1: You've told us a little bit about what, what, what is innovative, what is new in your work and what have you questioned. You've told us a little bit about the um sources that you've used well what do you think is most distinctive innovative or borrowed from other disciplines or methodologies in your work
0: what's the most distinctive goodness uh that's a very good question i think potentially i think i think the most distinctive element was pointed out to me actually in my viva um uh, for, for my thesis uh by uh by my external uh, examiner uh, i know um he pointed out to me um, just how much my methodology and my way of approaching uh the topic was shaped, uh was being shaped by Bradell uh and uh, and his work. And while I've always been a big fan of Bradell and, uh, and his and I've always uh brought his work uh into my own, I hadn't quite realized up until that moment just how important his way of understanding the world was to me as a, as an historian and so that when i was revising the book that was one of the main things i was doing was bringing this distinctive Bradelian perspective uh into the core structure of the book um so that i could write this histoire totale, this total history as bradell calls it which allowed me to uh to bring together these social uh, political economic legal elements all in a coherent narrative. So that looking at these underwriting portfolios uh, of these institutions alongside legal practices, litigation, alongside even uh, religious practices and uh, religious solidarity, um, these elements all make sense because of the framework uh, which I adopt thanks uh, to Pradal. And I think that is I think that's probably what's the most distinctive thing uh, about the book uh, is is that structure and the way in which it allows, I think, anybody with an interest in medieval history and in all of these different disciplines, they will, I hope, find something in the book which will be at least of some interest to them. Great.
1: And what would be the interest of business people today from this research? You've talked a little, about, a little bit about um, climate Change. You've talked about insurance, but what would you expect business people to to be drawn into reading your your book?
0: So for business historians, I think it's a I think the book is a, what I hope will be a good reminder of the importance of historical context in the nature of institutional development. Uh, it's very easy to apply uh, and to bring anachronistic baggage with us when. Trying to approach questions about the past, and I did this myself uh, in approaching approaching the thesis and the book. My original question was to, uh, or my my original desire was to understand well why did the Parisian insurance institutions fail, where those of Amsterdam and Paris uh, and London, sorry, did not, and actually that was a very in posing the question in those in those terms, I was bringing a lot of baggage with me. I was looking at it from a very modern perspective, because as I was saying before, these institutions were not failures, at least not in a way uh, which, uh, they were not failures in, so, in a way which would be so easily described as failures. Um, from a modern perspective of profit and profit maximization, we could say that these uh, these institutions were failures, but in fact, they were doing a lot more besides trying to make profits um so as i say historical context and uh uh i think that's one side which business historians will take also importance of the state in economic development uh i appreciate that that will be very unpopular with a lot of people who uh who believe in the power of the individual in an individual enterprise i don't wish to suggest that that is Um, that that is incorrect or that that is um, um, or that that, those perspectives should not be pursued but I do stress the importance of the state in early modern economic development and I think coming back to the point you were saying before about climate change the state is going to be once again a pivotal actor in economic development as we make that transition um, away from fossil fuels towards green technology this is not something which the private sector alone i would suggest is able to do as i say by itself it will need support and there are i think real echoes uh, in, uh, across across the ages um these um this common thread from the early modern period to the modern period uh in the role of the states uh in uh in doing this and also in responding to geopolitical tensions and competition as well. In the 17th century, it was uh, France and England trying to push back against Dutch dominance in commerce and shipping. Today, it is the EU and the United States trying to uh, push back against Chinese dominance in the procurement, uh, the refining and the utilisation of the elements needed for the green transition. Um, the state's whether we like it or not, matters. Uh, it mattered then, and it will matter again to us now. And that
1: ties very nicely to one of our previous podcasts on the on varieties of capitalism and and the role of the state and the interaction between business and and the state, which I will add to the show notes uh, as well. A well, final question, if you, if if uh, if I may, which is, what are you working on now? What is your next big project?
0: So uh this is I think uh we, we come full circle in fact. So uh I was mentioning at the start of uh the podcast that I uh was hoping originally to uh work on uh so my masters and PhD on French trade with the Ottoman Empire. Uh fate intervened to bring me to real insurance, but now I'm finally returning to uh to this original interest in uh, France and the Oxford Empire uh, so in particular I'm looking at France's trade in woolen cloth with the uh, with the Oxford Empire um, and this built very nicely actually on my research uh, because the narrative uh, which historians have presented to date uh, comes in two parts for the most part um, firstly the analysis tends to center on the interventions of Colbert uh, who was everywhere uh in the French economy uh in the 1660s and 70s uh up until his death in 1683 colbert intervened uh in um in this industry uh to try and promote french trade with the ottoman empire and then in the first half of the 18th century was the golden age of the uh, of this industry and this trade with the ottoman empire it was france's fastest growing industry and a real staple of uh, the mediterranean french economy but how we get from colbert's interventions to this golden age i argue actually hasn't been uh, hasn't really been explored colbert died in 1683 but the factories uh the cloth factories he was supporting were on the verge of bankruptcy and trade with the Ottoman empire remained fairly weak um the english remained the dominant players And yet, within 17 years, by the turn of the 18th century, France was establishing itself as a major player alongside the English, and within a few decades would become the dominant player. So why? What happens in this intervening period to explain this rapid change of fortune? In exploring that, I I, I seek to shift the perspective by looking, um, in part, not only on uh the Mediterranean perspective that is France's trade with the Ottoman empire but also uh the trade of this cloth um in asia more broadly in particular in india in siam uh through the french east india company um the investment of the french east india company in this industry was very significant and i see this as the forgotten part of the story this investment helped to underpin the development of the industry through this pivotal turning point in the industry's history and so looking at uh, the industry from this Asian perspective rather than strictly Ottoman perspective uh I I seek to argue um fills this gap and helps us understand uh why the uh, the industry developed as it did the project is at an early stage and I am um having great fun at the moment working through some archival uh, material. I look forward to be back in the archives in the coming months to uh, continue the project further.
1: And we look forward to having you back in New Books Network when when you have the publication out because I'm sure it's going to make another riveting read. So, Louis Wade, thank you very much for being with us today. Recipient of the coleman Prize in 2023, and with the dissertation that is published now as Privileged Economy and State in all Regime, France, Maritime Insurance, War, and the Atlantic Empire under Louis XIV by the Voidal Press. And as a paperback, an open-access book, the link to the open-access book will be in the show notes. This was Bernardo Lasso. Thank you for being with us. If you're a subscriber, please give us a comment or rank us. And if this, this is the first time that you listen to us, then do consider becoming a subscriber to New Books Network. Louise Wade, again, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you for to our listeners.